Oh yeah, she's that country girl who overcame the stigma that southern women are barefoot, backwoods, and backwards. Now she's an articulate voice for conservative values and wisdom in America. Sitting on her front porch sharing common sense, here's Marnie. Hi, welcome back to my front porch where we talk about common sense principles in America. Have you ever looked at the federal debt and what that is doing to us as a nation? We may think that the government can just print up money, print up money, and keep doing that forever and that we're not going to have to pay the piper one day. But eventually, we will have to pay the piper for the debt that we are racking up. Let me just share with you some numbers for you to understand what has happened with our federal debt. Uh, in the early 1900s, the federal debt was around the $2 billion mark, $2 billion. And it stayed pretty steady of $2 billion. In 1912, so uh, 1912, remember this number, it was $2.9 billion. By 1918, it had jumped to $14 billion, so seven times what it was before. By 1919, just a year later, it jumped to $27 billion. By 1949, it was $252 billion. Um, in 2007, before Obama took office, it was at $9 trillion. By the time he left office in 2016, it was at $19 trillion. So it was over twice as much when he left office as it was when he went in, and to the tune of $19 trillion. Now you may say, what's happening? Why is it happening this way? Why were we able to coast along at this lower number and then suddenly just something around 1912 jacked it up, okay? That's the last year it was low. It just steadily started doubling, doubling, doubling after that. Okay, here's what happened. In 1913, two things happened that changed our U.S. Constitution. Two amendments were ratified. The first, the 16th Amendment was the ability for the federal government to tax individuals. Prior to this time, 1913, individuals were not assessed taxes by the federal government. The Founding Fathers did not want a way for the federal government to exercise control directly over individuals. They didn't want to be able, them to be able to directly control or destroy or manipulate individuals in any way, so there was no way to tax those individuals by the federal government. So what you have to remember is the power to tax is the power to control. And that's the way the Founding Fathers viewed it. So there was no mechanism to do it until the 16th Amendment. Now you might be wondering, where did the federal government get the money to operate from? They got it from excise taxes and tariffs. So excise taxes might be on luxury items like liquor or whatever. And the tariffs usually were on imports and things like that. People were not taxed directly, so the federal government had to gather the money from those excise or tariffs, and anything, you know, like if, let's say a bill was passed into law, and it sent them over budget. Well, what happened was, when it went over budget, the federal government assessed the various state legislatures for the overage based on their population. So each individual state, they looked at their population and they had to pay a portion of this to make up the difference between what the federal government brought in and what they spent. So this kept the federal government in check to the states. The states had to approve that amount and here's how it worked. The 17th Amendment 
changed the way senators were elected. Before that time, senators were appointed by the state legislatures. The states appointed somebody to go to Washington. For 1913, when they changed that element of the Constitution, that's the way it was done, by appointee. And so what happened was, if you sent somebody from your state, let's say Georgia sends a guy up to be the senator to represent Georgia, and he's appointed by the state legislature, and he goes up there and he votes for something that makes Georgia have to pay the difference on some big bill. Let's say he votes for some law that's only going to benefit California. All the states would be assessed for that and have to come up with that money. Or let's say it only helps the Midwest, but it's not helping Georgia. The state legislatures are not going to like that. They're going to like it if this guy come back, comes back and say, yeah, I voted for this bill that only helped people way over there and it didn't help us at all, but we still have to pay for it. They wouldn't have gone for that. Or if he voted for excessive spending, even for things that might benefit Georgia to some degree, they're still going to have to go back to the people and the businesses within their communities and try to round up that money some way. And they don't want to have to do that. That's not something that's easy to do. I mean, how many of us vote for a raise in taxes? I know I never vote for those referendums that are going to raise my local taxes. Local people don't want to do it. If you have to vote for a specific increase in taxes, you just don't do it. But before that amendment happened, the states were a middleman between the federal government and the people that kept the people protected from direct intervention. The federal government could not dive into your pocketbook and take money from you, assess money from you every April 15th and take money from you. For example, my grandfather was the first man in the little town of Daisy, Tennessee to ever have to pay income tax, and that was probably in the 30s. In the beginning, they passed it saying only, only the really rich people are ever going to have to pay. And that's kind of how it was in the beginning. But gradually, it got down to almost everyone is paying some income tax to some degree. So even though a spending bill originates in the House, when it goes to the Senate, it has to be approved. And so passing a budget that then goes to the Senate became kind of a rite of passage at that time because the senators, they were going to be watchdogs over the state money. They were appointed by the states and they were representing the states and they're going to make sure the states don't get taken advantage of here. Where now, what happened in the, the 17th Amendment is we got rid of the state appointment of senators and it became a popular vote. The people themselves vote in the senators and there's no check by the state level on this. So these people go up there, they're not accountable to the state anymore, and there's no assessing the states for the money, the overage, because now they can go directly into the taxpayers' pocketbooks and pull that money out from us. Every paycheck, we've got money being pulled by the federal government. That was not there before at all. So now they can just spend, spend, spend. There's no check on what they're doing and they just keep pulling it out of our pocketbooks directly. Another shift that we see because of this is that where before the states were paying the overage, now the federal government is funding the states. So it's very uncommon to see any state that has a third of its budget not coming from the federal government. At least a third, generally, of every state comes from the federal government, some states more even. And so there's no incentive for the states to hold the federal government accountable. Let's say the federal government 
says that all this curriculum needs to be implemented in the, the state schools. And let's say the states and the local people don't like this curriculum. Well, if they say they're not going to do it, the federal government will say, well, we'll pull your, your federal funding. We'll pull your funding for state education, your education. And so they're like, oh, well, wait a minute, we don't want to lose our funding. They've become dependent on the funding. So the Tenth Amendment, which normally is a protection, this is how it reads, the Tenth Amendment. It says that the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So this was a check to say what's in this Constitution is all the federal government can do. Anything else needs to be a state decision or individual people decision, and it's not the federal government. And so now they're too scared. The states are too, too scared to go to the federal government and say, hey, you're overstepping your bounds. You're doing stuff that's not constitutional. They don't want to say it because if they anger the federal government, the federal government will pull their funding. So when we're talking about the national debt, there is one more element in play here that has made it mushroom because you, you'll watch that it jumped, but it didn't really significantly jump until Franklin Delano Roosevelt went into office. The first year he was president, around 1932, the national jet debt was at about $19 billion when he went in, and it jumped to $201 billion by the time he died. And by about 1944, it was at $201 billion. So from $19 billion when he went in to $201 billion when he went out. And the main thing that he changed was he created lots of agencies, which we'll talk about in another episode, but then also... He changed the way we interpret the General Welfare Clause. The original General Welfare Clause was interpreted to mean that if you pass a law, it needs to help everybody equally. It, it's not special interest. It's not helping one state over another. It's just general welfare of the all, all the states. They changed the way they interpret it. With him, it was like a chicken in every pot. That means we need to promote that everybody has what they need and that we're going to make sure that the government's going to make sure everybody has what they need. And there's a big difference between the government providing and making sure that you have what you need versus making sure that whatever laws are passed equally serve everyone. So that change, you'll see a big spike when you look at the national debt. That's where it really starts spiking. The combination of the senators, the direct taxation of individuals, and this change in the way the General Welfare Clause was interpreted has created the national debt that we have today. Our children and our grandchildren are going to have to pay. Somebody's going to have to pay these. We're accountable to, say, the Federal Reserve Bank and all these bankers and foreign powers for this money that we're spending it to. And you may think that the Federal Reserve is just, oh, well, the government owes itself. Not so. The Federal Reserve is not a government-owned entity. It's a private entity. It may have federal in the name, but it's not government at all. It's an outside power, an outside body that we owe this money to, and they will make us pay it. Our children and our grandchildren will be in servitude for these things that we're spending. And it's all because we've mangled the checks and balances in the U.S. Constitution. So what we need to do is repeal the 16th and the 17th Amendment and take it back to the way it was so that there's the checks and balances between the state and the federal government. Y'all take care. God bless. Have a wonderful day.